Good afternoon. Uh, it's, a, it's a great privilege, as always, to be able to, um, to open God's Word with you. Um, if you've got a Bible, um, if you could uh, keep it open in front of you and follow along, um, that's really helpful to me, um, because it means that you can check that what I'm saying is what's in the Bible, um, which is good, and then ignore anything that I say that's not in there. Um, so, yeah, have, it, have your Bibles open in front of you. There's some space on the back of the notice sheets. Um, if you're someone who likes to take notes, if that's helpful to you, um, that's great. Ian has got some Bibles, so if you want to pop your hand up if you've not got one yet. Um, let, let me just pray um, before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have given it to us um, to... Uh, teach us uh, about you, Lord, and teach us about your wonderful son, Jesus. Um, I pray that you would uh, bless us now, that you would be with us by your Holy Spirit and uh, and teach us um, to be more like your son. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're uh, continuing our series in Matthew, uh, which we've entitled Kingdom, uh, because it's all about the kingdom of God, uh, what it will look like who its subjects will be, uh, and how how its subjects will behave. Uh, And in this section, this passage that we've read, uh, Jesus performs uh, three miracles for us, not to to show off, but to show us that he has authority, um, to show us something of this new kingdom, and to call us to respond to him. So that's how we're going to break down the passage um, into those three points. Uh, Firstly, the king displays his authority. Secondly, the king demos the kingdom. And thirdly, the king demands your response. So first of all, um, let's have a look at how Jesus displays his authority. The king displays his authority. And we're going to spend most of our time here. Um, so if you're thinking this point's going on for a while, I hope the others are not as long. Um, that's, that is the case. The first one is, is longer than the others. Um, just, to, just to let you uh, follow along. Um, so Matthew tells us uh, three amazing stories here about Jesus. Uh, they're not, not three uh, random stories. Um, Sam just said to me uh, before he went out, he was like, I'm really interested to hear how you link these three stories together into one sermon. But I think Matthew has put these three together uh, for a reason. There's a link between them. There's, like a, there's a theme going on. There's a pattern um, which leads us to, to the same point. So through the pattern, Matthew shows us something about Jesus, that he has authority. Uh, So let's have a look at that pattern as it unfolds. Um, Firstly, um, we see that Jesus has authority over nature. So we start off with Jesus and his disciples uh, getting into a boat. Uh, Back in verse 18 of chapter 8, a few few verses back, Jesus decided that they were going to cross over to the other side of the lake. So this is the Sea of Galilee, um, and they were on they were on the northwest shore of the lake, and they were crossing over to the other side. Um, so Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds, um, which was understandable because he was he was a human, and he needed to rest and he needed to sleep, just like we do. But maybe it's not going to be as restful as Jesus anticipated. So if you're following along, uh, chapter eight, verse twenty-three. Um, uh, then he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. 
But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Uh, Because of the geography of the Sea of Galilee, because of where where it is, sudden storms are not unusual. Um, But this one must have been a whopper because the disciples were terrified. They were fishermen, so presumably they were quite used to this bad weather on the lake. Um, But they were terrified. Jesus, on the other hand, is fast asleep. So the first part of the pattern of these three stories is there is a a deathly situation. The disciples think they're going to die. When they wake Jesus up, they don't don't seem to really think that he's going to be able to help. It's it's almost like a last-ditch effort that they're making. Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Not, we'll drown if you don't save us, but we are going to drown. And Jesus rebukes them. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Jesus himself is clearly not afraid. Uh, Notice how he says this while he's still lying down. Look at verse uh, 26. He replies, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up. So he takes time to speak to them while he's still lying down. He's only just woken up. And when he does get up, Uh, we see the second part of the pattern, that Jesus uh, performs a miracle to rescue people um, from this situation, from this deathly situation. Uh, Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Let's just pause here for a minute. I think this is often quite familiar to us, and the way it's written is quite quite understated, really. But let's, let's read it again so that we don't miss it. Jesus got up and rebukes the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Remember, they're in the middle of this furious, violent storm. The wind is howling, the waves are crashing all around them. These hardy fishermen were wetting themselves with fear. And I don't know if you can picture being so terrified, having so little control of what's going on. Maybe some of you have been in a situation like that. I can't say that I have, to be honest. And then Jesus speaks, and it's completely calm. Not only does the wind instantaneously disappear, but the water is still as well, immediately. Think about how incredible that is. Have you ever seen like a completely calm pond? And you just want to like throw a stone in it to like see the ripples. But the ripples carry on going, don't they? Even long after the stone has dropped to the bottom. Well, there were, there were no ripples in the sea. There were gigantic waves and they suddenly became still. It was completely calm. Uh, some of the translations um, read, there was a deep calm or there was a great calm. This is not, this is not a fluke. It's not like, I, I don't know if you've ever been at, um, at traffic lights and you're like, okay, go green now. And very, very occasionally, the light will go green when you, when you point at it. That's, you know, it's obviously a fluke. It, it happens, you know, um, very, very rarely. Um, but this, this isn't a fluke. This is not a party trick. It's not like Jesus said, be still, and then it just happened to be that the storm died down at that moment. It would, you know, it would have taken time for the, the waves to settle down. It was completely calm immediately. 
This is an awesome act of power. This is a display of Jesus' authority. And Jesus has authority over the wind and the waves of a, of a nature. Uh, let me read you a couple of verses from the Psalms to show you exactly what we're seeing here. Psalm 89 verse 9 says of God, You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And Psalm 107 verse 29 says, He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. And those are talking about God. The disciples and Matthew's uh, Jewish audience that he was writing to knew from the Old Testament that the only one who has authority over nature is God himself. Jesus is making a clear statement here about who he is. And then the, the end of the story gives us the final part of the, the pattern. Um, so this pattern that we've seen, we've got a deathly situation, and then Jesus performs a miracle to rescue people from that situation. Uh, and finally, people respond to Jesus. Um, but we're going to think about that part of the pattern a bit later. So we'll leave that for now. Uh, let's move on to the, the second story and see how the pattern plays out. Um, and we'll see Jesus' authority over evil. Uh, the story follows on directly from the storm calming. So, uh, verse 28 of Matthew 8. When Jesus arrived at the other side of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. I think this, this is a bit of a strange one, isn't it? Um, we, we don't really talk in church about the idea of demon possession very much. I don't think I've uh, witnessed an exorcism since I've been here in the last six years. Um, we, we, usually, we usually leave that stuff to TV and films, don't we, like hor- horror films. But we can't ignore it here. Matthew is quite clear that these men are possessed by demons. They're not, it's, it's not a euphemism. They've not got uh, some serious uh, mental um, illness. They're not drunk or anything like that. They are actually really possessed by actual real demons. And I think the Bible is clear that there is a, a spiritual realm and that it's inhabited by some uh, evil beings, which we call demons. Um, and I think we're told that, uh, that these demons are fallen angels um, who have chosen to follow Satan uh, rather than following God. And their goal is destruction and deception. They're not uh, they're not Hollywood devils, you know, bright red with the horns and the, the tails and the pitchforks. They're, they're spirits, so I guess they don't really have a, a fixed kind of physical form. But if they did, they wouldn't look like that. Because that is scary, and, and demons don't want to scare us. They want to entice us uh, in, into doing uh, what they want. So they, they would, you know, they would look something more, more inviting and less terrifying than that. Um, but, it, but it seems that Christians don't need to worry about the possibility of being subject to demon possession because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, so we're protected from that. They can still tell us lies and deceive us and try to turn us away from God, um, but ultimately we are protected. But these men in the story are not Christians. They're most likely Gentiles. Um, I think that's why it tells us what the region is that Jesus goes to. Um, this is a, a Gentile-populated region. So, so they haven't got a, a knowledge of God, a, a belief in God. 
and, and they are demon-possessed. So this is our second deathly situation. These men have had their lives uh, taken from them by demons. No one will come near them. They're social outcasts. They live in tombs. They haven't really got any control over themselves. Um, the, the demons are in control, and their lives are, are wasting away. Can you picture them walking towards Jesus with, with long, uh, matted hair, yellow teeth, wild eyes, filthy, drooling, bleeding, with no hope, really, of going back to their former lives? But Jesus steps in again, and he performs a miracle, and he brings restoration to them. Uh, look back down at the, the passage. Uh, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Jesus heals them. He drives out the demons who had uh, driven these men to the point of death. And notice how it only takes a single word. Jesus just has to say, go, and the demons are gone. So this is another miracle by which Matthew shows us uh, Jesus' authority. And even the demons themselves understand that Jesus is in charge. Notice how they beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. They don't, uh, they don't demand it of Jesus, and they don't put up a fight because they know they'd be fighting a losing battle. I'm sure you've got a ton of questions about the incident with the pigs, like what's going on there. Um, I'm afraid I don't have any definitive answers for you. Uh, sorry to disappoint you. Um, but, um, but uh, yeah, it, does, it doesn't really explain it fully in the passage, but uh, I've got a few pointers that might help us to kind of think about it uh, in the right way. Uh, so, firstly, I think it's got something to do with the demons need to destroy. Evil is destructive. The demons know that Jesus is going to put a stop to their destruction of the men, um, and they, they want to carry on destroying, even in a, a smaller way, in the, in the animals, which they do. Uh, secondly, perhaps there's something about uh, Jesus waiting until the time is right. The demons are aware that Jesus is going to return at the appointed time, as they call it, to put to death uh, evil once and for all. But now is not that time. Jesus absolutely has the power to destroy the demons right there and then, but he chooses to be patient and wait for the right time. And thirdly, we see something of his care for people, I think, here. He values human life uh, far, far above any possessions uh, or animal life, even a whole herd of pigs. So as I say, those are not um, definitive answers that tell us exactly what's going on, um, but they, it kind of gives us uh, a bit of an idea. So we've seen Jesus' authority over nature. Uh, we've seen his authority over demons, over evil. And finally we'll see Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Now, this, this final story is a bit different to the first two. It still uh, follows the pattern in a way, but it doesn't really go where we expect it to go. Uh, or, I guess, where we would expect it to go if we didn't know what was going to happen because we read this lots of times before. 
So Jesus gets back in the boat, uh, he sails back over to the other side, um, back to Capernaum, where he was staying. Uh, this time, it seems like there wasn't an incident while they were in the boat, or at least not one that Matthew records for us. Um, so uh, chapter 9, verse 2, some men brought him a paralytic lying on a mat. So we've got our third uh, deathly situation. The man is paralysed, he's physically unable to move. Um, we might say that those, his mind is fully functional, his body is, to all intents and purposes, dead. He's not able to do things for himself and he's got to rely completely on other people. He's got to rely on his friends to do things for him. So, what does Jesus do? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. What? Hold on a minute, Jesus. Can't you see that this guy needs physical healing? Have you just, like, missed that? Or are you just ignoring it? We know Jesus is capable of physically healing people, so why doesn't he just do it? Uh, Well, I think it's because our idea about what this man's real problem is, is backwards. By first forgiving his sin, Jesus shows us what this man's real problem is. It's in his heart. His body might be dead, but, but his heart is dead too. He's spiritually dead. The real deathly situation is not his paralysis, but his sinfulness. And as a result of this, he's cut off from the perfect holy God with no hope of rescue until Jesus comes along and deals with it. He forgives the man's sin. He works a miracle. He displays his authority to forgive sin. Well, why does he show authority there? Anyone, anyone can forgive someone, right? Well, anyone can forgive someone who hurts them. But we can't go around forgiving people for hurting others. It's the one who's been hurt who's got to do the forgiving. And in the case of sin, sin is always against God. Other people might be hurt in the process and will be hurt in the process when we sin. But ultimately... Our sin is against God. And therefore, it is only him who has the right to forgive our sin. Go back to the Psalms. Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned. So this person who's who's writing the psalm understands that sin is against God. And so it must be God who forgives our sin. So I guess it's not surprising to see what happens next. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 9. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. They understand what Jesus is implying by forgiving the man's sin. Let's carry on. Uh, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. So Jesus does heal the man's physical uh, physical illness, his physical disability, 
but only as proof of his earlier claim that he's forgiven the man's sin. Uh, let, me, let me just clarify here. I'm not saying that the man's uh, physical illness was a result of his personal sin. That's not what's going on here. It's not like um, the man is paralyzed because of his sin, and when his sin is forgiven, he is suddenly not paralyzed anymore. That's, that's not what's going on. The physical healing is a pointer to the greater spiritual healing that he has received. I'll say that again, because that's important. The physical healing is a pointer to the greater spiritual healing that has taken place. Why do I say it's greater? Well, two, two main reasons. Firstly, because it's a much bigger problem. Physical suffering is just temporary, isn't it? Um, it, it might feel like it's permanent if, if you suffer with um, some kind of chronic illness, but it will be gone when we die. The problem of sin will not go away so easily, though. The Bible is clear that when we die, we will face God's judgment. And only those with a pure heart can enter his kingdom. The problem there being that none of us has a pure heart. We are rebels against God. And we put ourselves in his rightful place um, as ruler of our lives. And as Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Not physical death, but spiritual death. Eternal punishment in hell. And that is a big problem for us because God is completely just and he will do exactly what he said. He won't just let us off. So why is the spiritual healing greater than the physical one? Firstly, because it's a much bigger problem. And secondly, because it requires a much more costly solution. Because that solution was the death of Jesus on a cross. It involved great physical suffering for Jesus um, so great it was the physical suffering that the word we use for the worst type of pain actually comes from that the word excruciating comes from being crucified but more than that Jesus experienced great spiritual suffering Jesus was somehow uh, cut off from the father that he had spent all eternity with so this was incredibly costly for the father and for the son Healing the paralytic was, uh, was easy in comparison. It was just a case of suspending the laws of nature, which he had authority over anyway, shifting a few atoms around. But forgiving the man's sinful heart had the greatest cost that we can imagine, or that we can't imagine, really. Um, and by doing this, Jesus shows us that, uh, for a third time, his authority shows us that he really is king of God's kingdom because he's able to forgive sin. So we've seen how Jesus the King displays his authority uh, over nature, over evil, and to forgive sin. So uh, second point, um, Matthew shows us how uh, Jesus demos God's kingdom. Jesus demos God's kingdom. Sorry, I've not, I've not been um, clicking the... Uh, here we go. The, um, the King Demo is God's kingdom. Um, when a new uh, video game is released, um, often the publishers will put out a demo first, um, which is like 
I don't know, you, you might get it free in a gaming magazine or you might be able to download it. Um, and it's basically like a, a sneak preview for people to get excited about the, the game and to play like a, a limited version of it um, so that, you know, they'll get excited about it and they'll go and buy it. Um, a pitch here of, of my favourite video game, which is FIFA. Um, and, uh, and often at, at work, um, at lunchtime, obviously not, not while we're supposed to be working, but at lunchtime we, we play a bit of FIFA together and um, usually we're, we're, we're cheap skates, so we just download the demo and we just play that all year. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's pretty good, but it is limited. You can see here it shows you there is only, a, um, what, 12, 12 different clubs that you can play as out of hundreds that you could play in the, in the full game. Um, but it's, but it's, it's still pretty exciting. Um, anyway, that, that was a, a long introduction to uh, demos in video games. You probably didn't need that. Um, the point is, in these three stories, Matthew, um, Matthew is, um, well, G- Jesus is giving us a demo, I guess, a sneak peek, um, not of Jesus Christ the video game, which I think does sound awesome, and I would definitely play that, um, but he's giving us a sneak peek of the kingdom, a demo of the kingdom, which is really awesome in the, you know, the original sense of the word. Um, if you was here for our summer series on the Beatitudes, we saw how the blessings of being a follower of Jesus are primarily in the future. There's a certain uh, now element to them. But as Graham showed us last week, there's often a great cost to being a Christian, to being a follower of Jesus in the here and now. And the reward that is promised to us is is a reward later. The reward is Jesus himself in the new creation. The idea of a new creation might not be one that you've, you've heard before. Uh, usually we just talk about heaven, don't we? But the Bible says that one day Jesus will come back and he will make everything new. He'll bring about a brand new creation which will be perfect and will be inhabited by his people. It'll be his kingdom fully realised, consummated is the, the theological term sometimes we use. And it'll be a physical place as well. It's not going to be all flirting on clouds, playing harps. It'll be like earth, but infinitely better in every way. So in Jesus' miracles here, we see a little glimpse, a little demo of the future. The, the future kingdom is kind of poking through into this world. And it's a demo to, to get us excited to get excited about the real thing. It's a little bit just to get us excited about the real uh, real thing that is coming. The first thing that the new kingdom will be like is, well, nature will be under control. Nature can be pretty chaotic, can't it? We like to complain about the weather um, all the time in Britain. It's so unpredictable. Um, I guess we've got it quite good, really, because you know some parts of the world are regularly devastated by drought and floods, Earthquakes and volcanoes, hurricanes, that sort of thing. Uh, Close to home, most of us know what it is to to fight weeds in the garden or to be stung by a wasp. Nature sometimes feels like it's fighting against us. And that's because the natural world is under a curse because of sin. If we look back to Genesis 3, that's, that's exactly what God says. The ground is cursed. Because of man's sin. But in the new creation, it's going to be under control. Just as it was in the Garden of Eden. We're going to live in harmony 
with it. And, and we, get, we get a little glimpse of that here. Jesus speaks, and the wind and the waves obey him. There is great calm as nature submits to the authority of the king. A preview of what's to come. Secondly, in the new creation, there will be no more evil. Uh, the demons in the second story uh, were worried that Jesus wanted to torture them before the appointed time. They knew the time was limited. It wasn't up yet, hence why Jesus doesn't send them straight to hell. But when Jesus returns, he will finally defeat evil. He'll rid the world of demons and he'll rid the world of their father, the devil. That might not seem that exciting to you. Most of us have probably never witnessed a demon possession. But evil doesn't just come to us in that form. It mostly disguises itself. Sin is described as crafty and, and subtle. He tempts us to sin, and then he points the finger at us once we've done it. But sin will have no part in the new creation. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is, Satan and his demons, Jesus made a, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. They are already disarmed. And one day they'll be judged finally and eternally. Uh, thirdly, in the new creation, there will be no more sin. For this to be the case, everyone who enters the kingdom must be free of sin. Not uh, basically good people, uh, or the sincere, or those whose hearts are in the right place, but genuinely perfect, holy people. If people get into heaven who are sinful, then there will be sin in heaven in the new creation. And this is an issue for us because, as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, there is no one righteous, not even one. But through Jesus, we can have complete forgiveness of sin, just like the paralytic. Paul says elsewhere in Romans, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the kingdom of God will be populated with sinless people. We will live in perfect obedience to God's commands. Uh, that might not seem that attractive to you if you're not a Christian. Uh, maybe it doesn't seem that attractive if you are a Christian. But the Bible says that sin is the root cause of all the world's problems uh, and all of our problems. Uh, I said this earlier, but it's worth repeating. I'm not saying that the bad things that happen in your life are the result of your own sin. That might be true in, in some cases, but that, that's not a, a general rule. But the bad things that happen in the world are the result of the presence of sin in the world. So those, those bad things are a reality because humanity is sinful in general. But in God's kingdom, there is no sin. And I hope if you're a Christian, this truth makes your heart sing with joy. It gives us hope in that daily struggle with sin. That one day Jesus is going to return. The battle will be over and we will stand before God faultless. Not through what we've done, not because of our own merit, but because of Jesus's. So the new creation, God's kingdom, is a wonderful promise for Christians. And Jesus gives us this little demo here of what it will be like. Uh, I don't know if you know the word uh, catechism. 
or catechism is. It's basically, uh, it, it, it was more popular maybe 100 years ago or so. Um, it's basically a series of questions and answers that would be um, that would be done in church. So someone would stand at the front, ask a question, and people would learn the answers to them um, so that they would uh, kind of understand uh, different points of theology and what the Bible says about different things. Uh, and there's one particular one called the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I recommend looking it up. It's really good. Um, and question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the response is, which people would have learned, was, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself in the joy of glory and heaven, uh, and the joy and glory of heaven. So when we're faced with deathly situations, we've got nothing to fear. In Christ, we will go through death and enter into eternal life. By rising from the dead, Jesus defeated death. We must still die, physically, but death has lost all its power. It's lost all its sting. For the Christian, death is now simply an entrance into eternal life. Into the new creation with no more evil and no more sin. So we said earlier that we'd, uh, we'd come back to the third kind of act, the third part of the pattern um, that we see repeated in these stories. Um, and that is the human response to Jesus. So just briefly, um, Matthew shows us that the king demands your response. King demands your response. So let's look at how the different people respond to Jesus. Uh, we see three different responses. Um, have a think as I go through them. Which one do you identify with the most? Because as the onlookers responded in different ways to Jesus, as they some perform these miracles, we're going to respond differently to him as we, uh, as we hear the stories. So firstly, um, after Jesus calms the storm, the disciples respond with amazement. They've seen the things he's done, and they think he's incredible. But they don't yet understand who he is. What kind of man is this, they say? It's the same with the crowds after he's healed the paralytic. They were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. So they're, they're amazed at what Jesus has done. They're like, wow, this is incredible. Not seen anything like this before. Uh, the second response is uh, rejection. After he drives out demons, the people in that region reject him. They've seen what Jesus does, and they want nothing to do with him. They pleaded with him to leave their region. It says, he's too much hassle. He's not worth it. The other people who reject him are the, the Jewish teachers. They call him a blasphemer. They're fine with him doing the healing and driving out demons, 
That's all right, you can do that, Jesus. But stop claiming to have God's authority. That's, you're going a bit too far there. They want him stopped. And the final response, the paralytic and his friends respond with faith. We're not told exactly what this entails. We don't know if they understood everything that Jesus had come to do, but they trust him. They trust that he is who he says he is. And that's the only response that makes sense. If Jesus really did these things, if he really does have this authority, we can't just stand at a distance going, wow, that's, that's cool. And if, and if what he's offering, what is it, you know, what, what he's offering in the, in the kingdom, in the new creation, if, if that's true, we can't turn our backs on him and reject him. We must come to him in faith, trusting that he is able to, to forgive our sin and to bring us into his wonderful kingdom. Because Jesus has this authority that Matthew has shown us, we can rest safely and securely in him. We can have peace in our hearts now, and we can have hope for the future as well. We'd have to fear the natural world. We'd have to fear evil. We'd have to fear the consequences of our sin if we put our trust in him. Because he is the king of all of those things, and our confidence is not in ourselves, but in him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have uh, authority over nature, over evil, um, and uh, especially uh, to forgive our sin, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful kingdom um, that we can that we can hope in, that we can look forward to, uh, because of you, uh, because you died on the cross, Lord. Uh, to pay for our sins so that we might um, have a relationship with the Father and, and come into your kingdom, Lord. And we pray that it would, uh, that it would help us and that we would have peace uh, in, the, in the trials and the troubles of life um, as we remember this truth, Lord. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing our final song. <laughs>